0: Hey listeners, welcome to episode 22 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week we're headed to Michigan, and according to worldpopulationreview.com, Michigan has 556 unsolved disappearances. Keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Michigan true crime. The first case for this episode is about Henry Louis Baltimore, Jr. Henry Baltimore, Jr. was born on January 16, 1952, to parents Doris and Henry Baltimore, Sr. He was the second born of eight siblings and also his parents' firstborn son. He graduated from Parkside High School in the year 1970. After graduating high school, Henry moved into an off-campus apartment with three other roommates, one of those people being his longtime best friend named Paul Lott. Henry was described as a happy, personable individual that got along with everyone. At the time of his disappearance, Henry was a junior at Michigan State University and was majoring in social science and music there with the intentions of becoming a social worker in the future. He was an honor student and a drum major in the 215-piece University Marching Band. People that knew Henry said that he was very musically talented, and he was actually the first known African-American drum major at Michigan State University. His older sister was getting her master's degree at MSU during this time as well, and it was stated in a documentary I watched that Henry was very close with his family. Before we go into the details surrounding his disappearance, it's important for you to know what happened leading up to that day. On March 3rd, 1973, a man by the name of Roy L. Davis, along with another unidentified male, broke into Henry's apartment when he was there by himself. They pistol-whipped him across the face, tied him to the bed, and robbed him at gunpoint. It was reported that $110 in cash was taken, along with several personal items. In the documentary, Paul Lott and Henry's remaining family members were all interviewed. Paul stated that he believes Roy thought Henry and his roommates were dealing drugs at this time and would have a significant amount of cash in the apartment. This was not the case at all, leading Roy to frantically take anything of value that he could find including a watch, some clothing, and Paul's golf clubs. Before the two men left the apartment, they made multiple threats to Henry, so he did not immediately file a police report. After speaking to his father about what had happened, Henry Sr. convinced him to go to the police, and he officially reported the crime 10 days after it had taken place. He told police he had waited to report it because he had been threatened by Roy and feared for his life. People believe he personally knew his attackers because he was able to give their identities to the police and they were arrested for armed robbery shortly after. It even stated in the documentary that Henry was able to pick Roy out of a lineup. Even though he had threatened Henry, Roy Davis was released on bail shortly after he was charged. Roy continued to make threats, trying to keep Henry from testifying against him. Paul even stated that shortly after being released on bail, Royce showed up at their apartment to threaten Henry and returned all the stuff he had stolen with the agreement that Henry would drop the charges and not testify. After this, Henry did not show up to East Lansing's 54th District Court to testify at the preliminary examination and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Two days went by until Henry finally resurfaced. He paid the $50 fine that had been set for missing his court appearance and then went to the prosecutor and told him he wanted to drop all the charges against Roy. But at that point in the investigation, the prosecutor refused. Because of this, the law required that Henry testify in court whether he wanted to or not. A new court date was set, and Henry did appear this time and testified against Roy on May 24, 1973. Before testifying, Henry had told his sister that Roy had threatened to kill him. On May 30, 1973, the day Henry disappeared, police believe that Henry was at his apartment alone and his roommates were in class. Henry's neighbors later came home and stated they saw a green car parked in their assigned spot that they didn't recognize. When they walked to their apartment they saw two men banging on Henry's apartment door and yelling his name. When they went to enter their apartment, the two men turned to them and asked if they had any idea where Henry was. These people stated they never saw Henry answer the door, and both men were still banging on the door when they left their apartment a little while later and said the green car was still parked in their assigned spot. So it's assumed that this vehicle did belong to these two men. It was Henry's older sister who originally realized he was missing. She had agreed to come to his apartment and get a paper she had promised to type up for him. He wasn't home when she got to the apartment. An hour and a half after he was last seen, his 1968 Buick was found at his apartment along with his car keys, money, clothes, and other belongings. At first, police thought Henry had possibly left the area because he was afraid of testifying. But as time went by and he never resurfaced, they changed their minds. His family did not believe that Henry would leave without contacting anyone or without taking his car and personal belongings. His sister later stated in an interview, quote, His car was there and his things were there in their places, but he wasn't there. I kept calling and his roommate said he went to the library and never came home. The time to turn in the paper came and went, and no Henry. I had to call my father. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Quote. Once his sister contacted Henry Sr. and told him what was going on, he contacted the police. A teletype was sent out by East Lansing Police on June 5th that said Henry's disappearance was suspicious and foul play was suspected. Months went by, and by August, they were quoted in the Citizen Patriots saying they had, quote, "...completely run out of clues and information." End quote. Henry's younger brother Lonnie was later quoted saying, "...the pressure of the court case may have been too much for him to take. He was home the weekend before Memorial Day, and he said he needed to get someplace by himself to get away from that apartment." End quote. In the fall, Roy pleaded guilty to felony assault with intent to commit robbery and was sentenced to six months in the county jail. Prosecutors had to offer him a plea agreement because Henry could not be found to testify at trial. He has never been charged in connection to Henry's disappearance, and Roy's mother backed up his alibi for the time Henry disappeared, so police had no other evidence to go on. An investigator later stated that he believes Henry was home at the time the men were banging on his door, but was too scared to answer the door. There were no signs of forced entry into the apartment, so police believe Henry eventually opened the door and the men forced him to get in their car with them. It's not clear what exactly happened next. Quote, The report isn't super detailed. A lot to be left to interpretation Again, no physical evidence whatsoever. Both detectives that worked this case have since passed. Several months later, after Henry's been missing this whole time, Roy pleads guilty to the original armed robbery, ended up getting sentenced to six months in the county jail, and that probably would have been the end result anyways, end quote. So he was basically saying that even if Henry had not disappeared, Roy would have still gotten the same sentence, so making Henry disappear had no purpose whatsoever because he was still charged. Henry's brother Lonnie was 17 when Henry disappeared, and he said in a later interview that he tried to investigate what might have happened to his brother. One of his theories was that Roy might have had a connection to a cousin of Henry's who also lived in Flint where Roy lived and had previously been in trouble with police. Quote, if Henry didn't leave on his own and they came back and took him away, well, they know how to get rid of people in Flint so you never find them. Quote. Roy has always denied he had any involvement in Henry's disappearance and he has never been charged to this day. The last report about Roy Davis came in 2020 and it stated that it's believed he's still alive and possibly lives in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. In a documentary dedicated to Henry, investigator Rigglesworth stated, quote, Somebody knows what happened to Henry. End quote. He believes the two men knocking on his door know what happened to Henry that day and believes he was murdered and buried somewhere between East Lansing and Flint. He stated that he attempted to re interview the witnesses that were at the apartment in 2014, but these individuals couldn't even recall the case at all. After hearing nothing new in Henry's case for years, the pending 40th reunion of Parkside's class of 1970 showed a strange message they had come across to Henry's family. The internet notice sent out to inform the classmates about the reunion brought a response from someone stating, quote, I used to be Henry Baltimore, end quote. It was most likely a hoax, but I couldn't find anything that stated there was any follow-up on this. Henry's family remains frustrated by the lack of news that has come forward over the decades. His family has always been concerned that because of the time period, police at the time might have considered Henry, quote, just another black kid in trouble, end quote. Henry's case remains the East Lansing Police Department's oldest cold case. Chief Tom Wilbert was quoted saying, it's still an open case. Missing persons cases are not unusual, but we usually find something. This is highly unusual because there's been nothing for this long. There is no evidence of anything. He just disappeared. End quote. Police have Henry's dental records on file and also took DNA from his family members, so his DNA is available in CODIS which stands for the Combined DNA Index System. A $1,000 reward is still available for any information that leads to Henry's whereabouts. Henry's sister was quoted saying in an interview, I have dreams that one day Henry will walk back into this house while my mother is still alive. My gut feeling, though, is that I just can't imagine he's been gone all this time and not say something or did something to let us know he's okay. End quote: "Henry's father passed away in 1990 and his mother Doris, in 2014, with no answers about what happened to their son. They were married for 41 years. It was reported that two of his brothers passed away, but the rest of the family is still looking for him. His brother, Lonnie, was quoted saying, "There's not been a day since he's been missing that I don't think about Henry. When I go to bed at night, I say a prayer." The family's dream is that one day they will find out what happened to Henry all those years ago and finally receive some closure. Henry Baltimore Jr. was last seen in East Lansing, Michigan on May 30, 1973, when he was 21 years old. He is an African-American male with black hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was six foot two and weighed around 175 pounds. Henry was last seen wearing a black turtleneck sweater, light gray slacks, and black and gray or black and white shoes. Henry's hair was styled into a large afro at the time of his disappearance. His case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Henry Baltimore Jr., please contact the East Lansing Police Department at 517-319-6811. The second case for this episode is about Kelly Marie Brownlee. Kelly Brownlee was born on November 5, 1964, to her mother Loretta. At the time she disappeared, she was 17 years old and living in Novi, Michigan. It was said Kelly could be a little bit wild, but was genuinely a nice teenager and had never been in any sort of criminal trouble. She liked heavy metal, smoked Marlboro Reds, and would drink alcohol on occasion with her friends but she was also still very responsible and did not mind working hard at all. Kelly told Loretta that her life motto was live, love, and laugh, and this was something she strived to live by every single day. As far as I could find, Kelly had one sister named Kim, and it was stated Kelly was very close with her mom. Growing up, they lived with Loretta and their stepfather, Paul Brownlee, Most people thought Paul was Kelly's father because she had always used his last name, but he was, in fact, her stepfather. I couldn't find any information specifically about her biological father. Loretta had married Paul when Kelly was young, and he had helped raise her and Kim. In 1977, Kim accused Paul of sexually abusing her. I read that Paul pled guilty to fourth-degree criminal sexual misconduct, and after that, Kim decided to move to California to live with her biological father. Like I said, Kelly was very close with her mom, so instead of going with Kim, she decided to stay in Michigan. Kelly never told her friends why Kim moved to California, but many of them later ended up coming forward after Kelly disappeared and stating they had thought Paul had been physically abusing Kelly for some time. Even though she never said much about her home life, her friends said she would often stay with them for weeks at a time when she needed to get away from her home, and they would regularly see bruises all over her body. One friend even stated she once counted 32 bruises in total that she could see. Even though Kelly regularly stayed away from the family home, she kept in regular contact with Loretta. At the time of her disappearance, Kelly was dating a guy by the name of Mark Graves. In April of 1982, just six weeks before Kelly disappeared, she had had enough of Paul and decided to move in with Mark and his parents. It was stated that her mother felt stuck with Paul for a while because of financial reasons. But Loretta was close to finishing nursing school at this time and was planning to divorce Paul so her and Kelly could live by themselves. Loretta desperately wanted Kelly to move back home, but Kelly felt that she had to stick to her plan and wait to return until Loretta had officially left Paul. Kelly told her mom that her plan was to come home when she knew Paul was gone for good. This was confirmed because the day Kelly disappeared, she had been filling out job applications and had listed her mom's address as her home address. This leads me to the day that Kelly disappeared. Before we continue, I want to remind you that even though Kelly is dealing with adult problems at this time, she is only 17 years old and she is still in high school. On the morning of May 20th, 1982, Mark and Kelly got on the bus to head to school. Because of her current situation at home, Kelly was trying to find a job as quickly as possible. So when they arrived at school, she decided to skip class that day and head to the mall to fill out job applications. She told Mark she would see him later that night and then left the school. This was the last time Mark would ever see Kelly. Like I said, Kelly is 17 years old at this time and I found out she did not have her driver's license yet, so she regularly hitchhiked. Reports state that on this day in particular, she successfully hitched a ride from an unknown individual after leaving her school and was dropped off about five miles away at the 12 Oaks Mall in Novi, Michigan. There were several witnesses that saw Kelly at the mall filling out applications at multiple different retail stores. Around 11 a.m., Kelly ran into a friend of her mother's named Judy. Judy asked Kelly if she needed a ride, but Kelly told her she was planning to fill out a few more applications before she left the mall. This was the last time anyone would ever see or speak to Kelly. Mark knew Kelly was working hard to find a job, so he wasn't too worried when she didn't make it back before the school day ended. As the evening went on and it started to get dark and there was still no sign of her, He started to get really worried because this was really unlike Kelly. When she didn't call or come home by 9 p.m., this was when he knew something was wrong and began calling all of her friends. He was hoping maybe she had bumped into someone she knew and decided to hang out for a while. But after he contacted all of her friends and no one had seen her, her friends encouraged him to call her mom, Loretta. Kelly's close friend Carrie even offered to make the call for him, and Mark agreed. It was reported that Carrie made the call, and her heart sank when Loretta answered and said she had not heard from Kelly at all that day either. Carrie then told Loretta that no one had seen or heard from her and they believed she was missing, so Loretta immediately contacted the police. A search was quickly conducted for Kelly, but no trace of her could be found anywhere. Her boyfriend Mark was one of the first people to be interviewed, and he told police Kelly had skipped school that day only because she wanted to get a good job. He also told them he didn't think she had just left because all of her personal belongings were still at his house. Just a reminder, Kelly had been living with Mark at his parents' house. The only thing she had reportedly taken with her to the mall that day was her purse. Authorities quickly ruled out Mark and her immediate family as possible suspects. Detectives were able to verify through multiple witnesses that Kelly had been seen around 11 a.m. at the mall, but there is not a single account of her whereabouts after she finished applying for jobs. As I said earlier, Paul Brownlee had been convicted of sexually assaulting Kelly's sister, so he was the next person the police focused on. Paul told police that he was visiting his father-in-law's grave before going directly to the gym during the time Kelly was said to have gone missing. There was no one to confirm his story, but he maintained he had never abused Kelly and even put up a $1,000 reward for any information surrounding her disappearance. When police searched his apartment, there was no trace of her anywhere to be found. When detectives asked him if he would be willing to take a polygraph test, He agreed, but then retained a lawyer immediately after and would not speak to detectives any further. Because Kelly had never pursued the abuse claims against Paul, they had no evidence he had abused her or been involved in her disappearance. For the time, Paul would remain a person of interest, but police had to keep investigating other leads. They couldn't rule out the possibility that she had hitched a ride with someone who had then done something to her or had possibly left the mall with someone that she knew. Detectives followed up on every tip they received, including multiple reported sightings, but ultimately found nothing and could never confirm any of these sightings. As time went on, Paul would frequently call detectives with tips about potential sightings and some of his own possible theories. This went on for years, even after Loretta had already divorced him. In 1991, Six years after their divorce, it was reported that he even showed up at the police station with a swimsuit catalog, convinced that one of the models looked exactly like Kelly. Police believed he was only trying to find out any information he could about the current investigation, especially because Kelly would have been 26 years old in 1991, and they stated the girl in the catalog appeared to be around 12 years old. This made them suspicious because he was still refusing to be interviewed personally, but would not stop inserting himself into the investigation. Over the decades, dozens of potential sightings of Kelly have poured in from all over the country, including California, New York City, New Mexico, Illinois, and Indiana. Every single lead was investigated, but ultimately turned up with nothing related to Kelly's case. There have been a couple suspects other than Paul that were highly considered over the years. So I wanted to go through these possibilities as well. Another suspect that ended up coming up was named James debardo In November of 1983, United States Secret Service agents searched his residence located in Virginia and found photographs, journals, and tapes of multiple women. It was noted that James had a very specific victim type, all brunette female hitchhikers. Kelly was a brunette, and like I stated, was also a regular hitchhiker. Some of the photos found were shown to Loretta for identification purposes, and she confirmed that none of the girls in the photos were Kelly. James was eventually ruled an unlikely suspect in Kelly's disappearance, but is still considered the prime suspect in the disappearance of Judith Chartier, who went missing on June 5th 1982. An update came in November of 2021 regarding Judith when her car and remains were found in the Concord River. The news update stated they were trying to reconstruct her remains to try to find cause of death, but no further updates have been given that I could find as of October 2022. The Oakland Press released an article in May of 2005 regarding Kelly's disappearance. Sergeant Dan O'Malley of the West Bloomfield Township Police Department stated, quote, It's a cold case. There's no body, no crime scene, no nothing, End quote. Cases like Kelly's are extremely rare in Oakland County, and most young people reported missing are quickly found. Lieutenant Diana Peters of the Pontiac Police Department stated, quote, We don't get many missing child cases. But the ones we do get tend to be runaways, and we usually find them pretty quickly end quote. At the time that article was released in May of 2005, it was reported that Kelly's stepfather Paul Brownlee, had passed away and James was still a suspect serving time in a Colorado prison. More than another decade went by before the searches started back up for Kelly in May of 2018. Police announced that they were investigating the possibility that suspected serial killer Arthur Reem might have killed Kelly. Arthur was serving a sentence for raping a 15-year-old girl when he confessed to murdering Cindy Zarzynski in 2008. Cindy was a 13-year-old girl who went missing from East Point, Michigan in 1986. Arthur led them to where he had buried her body in a shallow grave just 30 miles from where she was abducted. Arthur claimed to police that Cindy had not been his only victim all those years ago, but detectives also stated that Arthur Ream, quote, is a manipulator who loves to play mind games, end quote. Arthur also admitted to authorities that he enjoyed watching them search for answers. In May of 2018, Officials searched the wooded area in Macomb Township for the bodies of other women whose disappearances they thought might be connected to Arthur. This was the same area that they had found Cindy's body in 2008. It's believed that Arthur Ream could possibly be connected to the following disappearances. The 1970 disappearance of Cynthia Coon, the 1974 disappearance of Nadine O'Dell, the 1979 abduction of Kimberly King, the 1981 disappearance of Kim Laro, and possibly the 1982 disappearance of Kelly Brownlee as well. All these women disappeared from Michigan, and Arthur Ream had bragged in prison at one point that he was a serial killer responsible for killing at least four to six victims. The former deputy police chief was quoted saying, I've always thought that Mr. Ream was responsible for additional kidnappings and murders and felt that area could be a place where other bodies were buried, quote. Authorities excavated the surrounding land where Cynthia was found buried, but no other remains or evidence was found in that search. To this day, Arthur Ream has not been ruled out in Kelly's case or any of the other disappearances, and he still remains a suspect. Even though Kelly's case is still unsolved, Police do not believe she left on her own and foul play is suspected in her case. In a 2019 interview, a close friend of Kelly's named Carrie Oswald said she still keeps a framed photo of Kelly on her nightstand. When asked about Kelly and how she felt about the most recent searches, she stated, quote, she was just happy-go-lucky and looking forward to what the future held for her. If it can bring one family closure, they've done their job. End quote. Kelly Brownlee was last seen on May 20th, 1982, in Novi, Michigan, when she was 17 years old. She is a Caucasian woman with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 7 and weighed around 125 to 135 pounds. Kelly was last seen wearing a long-sleeved peach-colored blouse white painter's pants, and burgundy Nina pumps. She was carrying a wine-colored purse, her upper left front tooth was capped, and her ears were double pierced. Kelly has a slight heart murmur, and her case is classified as a non-family abduction. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Kelly Brownlee, please contact the West Bloomfield Police Department at 810-68215 6-3. That is all I have for episode 22, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email, creme de la crime podcast 7 at gmail.com, and don't forget to head over, rate, and review on Apple, as well as follow me on Instagram at Pod. As always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open. Until next week, this is Sam signing off.